Hi there, and welcome to the Good Gut Girl podcast. So my name's Sharon Hesp. I'm a degree qualified naturopath, and I specialize in gut health. I live in Hurstville Grove with my husband and Beagle, and I run a busy naturopathic clinic and also run online gut healing courses. And most weekends, you will find me in the garden. So today I wanted to talk to you about food intolerances. So sometimes food intolerances are known as food sensitivities. I do prefer to call them intolerances, but those words can be used interchangeably and there's no problem. But they're not to be confused with a food allergy. So a food allergy is mediated by the IgE part of your immune system. And a food intolerance is mediated by the IgG part of your immune system. So they're both medi mediated by the immune system, but they have very, very different effects. So an allergy, you will have a reaction within 30 seconds, maybe sometimes 10 minutes later. And that reaction can be life-threatening or anaphylactic. Whereas an intolerance, you will have a reaction between sometimes 10 minutes, sometimes 30 minutes, and sometimes four to five days after you have ingested that food. So the reaction is a delayed reaction, which makes it quite difficult to work out what's going on. It's thought that up to 20% of the population um, have a food intolerance and 60 to 70% of gut problems are related to food sensitivities or food intolerances. And those reactions are delayed. So I find it's very important to test or diagnose um, a food intolerance. And I do that in clinic, either with a finger prick blood test, or I, if you don't live near to the clinic here in Sydney, near to me, I will organize a test to be done with an outside laboratory. And look, sometimes testing is not an option. And if testing is not an option, I remove a certain food. So I'll remove A1 dairy, I'll remove wheat, and I'll remove egg. And if we still are not getting anywhere and your symptoms are still problematic, we will then remove yeast, A2 dairy, gluten, corn, and almond. So they are the foods that are the most problematic for people. So what you need to be careful of is when you um, have a food intolerance, you need to remove those foods 100% because don't forget it's the, an intolerance is mediated by the immune system. So it only needs a small amount of food to, for your body to react. So what happens is when you have a food intolerance, it means you've got a leaky, what we call leaky gut syndrome. So leaky gut syndrome is when the junctions in your gut are not tight like they should be. They're quite loose. So when you consume a food and you eat it, small proteins leak down those wider gut junctions and they hit your bloodstream. Your immune system then comes along and says, hmm, you should not be here and it attacks it. And that's why you get symptoms. So that's how a food intolerance works. So when it comes to food intolerances, what you need to do is you need to identify which foods are problematic and you can do that via testing or removing foods. 
but you need to keep those foods out 100% for at least three months. You need to do some work with your gut health and get that gut healed up. You need to do some work with your immune system and stop it from overreacting when it sees a, a protein molecule that it thinks should not be there. So for instance, if A1 dairy has shown to be a problem for you, it's essential that you remove all dairy, all cow's milk, cream, cheese, butter, margarine, ice creams and yogurts and chocolate. Think here, remember, dairy, milk, chocolate. But instead, you can have things such as A2 milk, soy milk, rice milk, coconut milk, oat milk, almond milk, any other nut milk. Instead of cream, you can have coconut milk or coconut cream or A2 yogurt. And instead of cheese, look at tofu or goat's cheese or goat's feta or sheep's cheese or the chevrolet goat's cheese. Instead of butter and margarine, you can use Nutlex, which is a dairy-free margarine. And being a margarine, it's not ideal for your gut, but sometimes you need something. So I say to people for a short amount of time, it, it's an okay thing to use. But also you could consider olive oil, tahini, avocado, hummus, or ghee. Instead of ice creams and yogurt, look at soy ice desserts, fruit sorbets, coconut ice cream, A2 yogurt, coconut yogurt, goat or sheep yogurt. And for chocolate, look at dark chocolate as well. Now, what you need to be very, very careful is, and this is where people come unstuck, is you need to look at hidden sources of dairy, okay? You need to become a really, really good label reader. So if the label says it contains skim milk, skim milk powder, lactose, casein, non-fat milk solids, dried milk or whey, then it contains dairy and you should not consume those foods. Now, there are hidden A1 dairy sources that you need to be careful of. So champagne and imported wine sometimes will contain dairy. Unless your wine says it's vegan friendly, it's, it can contain dairy. Um, and you just need to look at the label. It will say, um, find it using or finished with dairy products, or it may say um, processed with dairy and traces may remain. Now, this is the only time that you need to obey a traces may remain label. The rest of the time you'll get away with it. But when it comes to dairy, yes, traces will remain. And this is why you'll notice that sometimes you'll, you can drink some wines and you feel fine and you drink other wines and you will get a headache after just one wine. Uh, and it's the same with champagne, unless that champagne is vegan. Now there is Angoves make a vegan champagne in Australia, but most imported champagnes, most of the French champagnes are dairy free. You also need to be careful of soy cheese. Read the label as it often contains casein. And you need to be careful of gluten-free breads. They often will contain dairy. And breads from Asian bakeries, they use um, skim milk powder for flavor, okay? And then some salad dressings contain dairy and flavored rice crackers. So for instance, balsamic flavored rice crackers contain skim milk powder as a flavoring agent. So you need to be really, really careful of that. So A1 is probably the most common uh, food intolerance that I come across, followed pretty quickly by eggs. 
Okay, so eggs or egg byproducts are usually in mayonnaise, cakes, biscuits, pancakes, custards, quiche, spinach pie, meringue, bernay sauces, tartare sauces, donuts, fried rice, egg noodles, pasta, pad thais, Caesar salad, crumbed foods, hamburger mints, ice cream often will contain egg, spaghetti sauces, noodles, dips, dumplings, sausages, and some wines as well. So there are really no uh, replacement options for egg as they're in for A1 dairy, um, but you can buy an egg replacer if you're baking, um, or you could also use a tablespoon of flaxseed meal instead of an egg. Sometimes a mashed banana works well. Um, just use like a tablespoon for one egg. Or if you wanted to crumb something, I say to people, sometimes just use some A2 natural, natural yogurt instead of the egg in, in the egg wash. Then the third biggest food that's problematic for people as far as intolerances go is wheat. Okay, so if, you've, if you're wanting to remove wheat from your diet, you're being diagnosed with a food sensitivity or intolerance, or you just wanted to remove wheat, you need to remove wheat-based breads, pastas and flours, couscous and bulgur, wheat bix, wheat germ, puff wheat or wheat bran. So instead, you can have spelt breads, oat sourdoughs, kamut, barley or quinoa sourdoughs. Instead of pastas, have spelt, quinoa or rice and corn-based pastas. Instead of flour, you can use spelt, quinoa, rye, buckwheat, rice, corn flour, maize, besan, potato, coconut or barley flours. Um, I usually just tell, tell people to go with a spelt flour. That's quite easy to cook with. And then instead of for couscous, couscous and bulgur, just have some quinoa or rice. Then for wheat replacement foods as well, for wheat bix, think gluten-free wheat bix. And look, you know what? I'm the first person to say wheat bix are not nutritious and neither are gluten-free wheat bix. But if you're dealing with a child or you're dealing with a fussy eater, Gluten-free wheat bix are going to be better than wheat bix with wheat and gluten in them. So sometimes it's the devil you know versus the devil you don't. Um, for wheat germ, puff wheat or wheat bran, puff rice, oats, cornflakes, oat bran or rice bubbles. Some of those are not nutritious, but if you're trying to remove wheat, they are okay for a short amount of time. And look, you'll find wheat is in a lot of foods. Obviously, you know, when it comes to bread, cake, biscuits and pasta, but wheat is also in foods that you wouldn't expect. So foods such as barbecue sauce, ice cream, soy sauce, ham, sausages, gravy, beer, and even some chips will contain wheat. So it's essential that you read all your labels to ensure you're not consuming any wheat. So then they're the big three ones as far as food intolerances go, is the A1 dairy, the wheat, and the eggs. They are the first things that I will pull out of someone's diet if we can't test. And they are usually the, the most problematic. And you will see a lot of difference if you totally remove them. So as I said, you need to remove those foods for a full three months and do some work with your gut. Have some bone broth to heal that up. Um, talk to your naturopath about gut healing powders. Um, get, 
you know, you really need to, to, to keep that gut healed up and you really need to keep the stress reduced in your life as well. So intolerances can be um, difficult to manage, but once you remove those foods, the first three or four days, you will feel terrible, but by day four or day five, you will feel fantastic. And that's how I always know that we that a food intolerance is problematic for that reason. So you keep, because you have this detox effect. So you keep the foods out for a minimum of three months, and then we introduce the foods one at a time. So if we were going to introduce A1 dairy, I would say, just have a teaspoon of milk and see how you feel or a teaspoon of yogurt. And it's essential that you wait three months and you don't do it at the six week mark. If you do it at the six week mark, what happens is you will get a reaction that is not commensurate with the amount of food you've eaten. So for instance, if you decide to have a tablespoon of Greek yogurt, what happens is your immune system is has been sitting back for a little while, just relaxing, thinking, mm, I haven't seen that for a long time. Then all of a sudden it sees it and it attacks. And it's almost like your immune system saying, I'll get you for once and for all. So that's why I say to people, and, and for instance, you might get a cracker migraine for 12 hours. You might get intense gut pain. The reaction you have is not commensurate with the amount of food you've had. Whereas at the three-month mark, three mark, you can reintroduce foods confidently, but have a small amount first. Then you wait three or four days. If there's been no reaction, you have a larger amount. Now, if you get a reaction from the larger amount and you don't get it from the smaller amount, you know that your body can cope with a smaller amount, but you know it can't cope with a larger amount. So you keep the larger amounts out for another three months or you keep it out altogether for another three months and then you retry and you do the same with wheat and you do the same with egg. Now, eventually, depending on how damaged your gut is, how old you are, you can get most foods back in successfully. I um, use a Houston enzymes, um, digestive enzyme. And what that does is that breaks down the proteins in the gluten and the dairy and the soy and the egg. So you can have smaller or larger amounts of those foods, take a couple of the enzymes and the reaction is not as bad because the reality is one night you're going to go out and you're going to have pizza. And you need to be able to do that and be confident that you're not going to have a massive reaction and feel super, super unwell. So I do use those myself and, and they are very, very good. So that's kind of the basics of food intolerances. There are obviously lots more things as well. And I just as well want to address um, the efficacy of the testing process. I do find that the tests are very, very accurate, but when they've run tests like this scientifically, they traditionally say that that the tests are not accurate. And my theory behind that is if they want to test 100 people that don't have gut symptoms, obviously they may be intolerant to them, but because their gut is in great shape, they don't have this leaky gut thing going on. And because they don't have a leaky gut thing going on, the proteins cannot drop through to the immune system. So of course, they're not going to have a reaction. Okay. And another thing to be mindful of is if you're tested for food intolerances and you remove those foods and there is no change in your symptoms, that just means that there is something else going on in your gut. So you might have SIBO or you might have fructose 
or you may have a parasite. It's really, really hard to know unless you do test. So there are a few things to consider with that. But um, I find the testing to be accurate. I like it. I will run an in-clinic test for my patients here as long as they're over 18 and they're okay with like a finger prick blood test. Otherwise, I send it out to, to an outside lab. So food intolerances, you can learn to live with them. Um, you do not have to put up with the signs and symptoms and there are ways of getting rid of those. So I hope you've enjoyed um, our podcast today, all about food intolerances. And our next podcast is about fructose malabsorption. So we're going to be just discussing that. So I'd love for you to join me. Thanks for listening.